Under the Stark Law, hospitals can financially induce physicians. How, you ask? Well, listen to part two of Physician Recruiting, and I will let you know. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Well, today I will be heading into part two of physician recruiting. And in part one of physician recruiting, I went in granular detail uh, regarding the various components under the Stark Law of the physician recruitment exception. Now, one of the things I do want to point out is the exception under the Stark Law applies to physicians, as I described. There is a non-physician practitioner exception, which I will talk about later, but if you're trying to recruit a non-physician practitioner, there are different rules that apply because there's a different exception. So I want to make sure that that is, is up front. And in this episode, I'm going to describe the differences under the anti-kickback statute and then go into some of the recent settlements and advisory opinions and some of the issues that we need to be looking for with respect to tax-exempt entities that are recruiting physicians. And as I said in part one, the recruitment exception applies to hospitals, including rural hospitals, as well as federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics. And it does not apply to other designated health service entities. So now I'm going to talk about the differences under the anti-kickback statute and specifically the practitioner recruitment safe harbor. Now, notice I said the word practitioner recruitment. I did not say physician recruitment safe harbor. So the anti-kickback statute uses the word practitioner, which means it is broader in concept than just a physician. Under the Stark Law, we have two exceptions, one for physicians and one is for non-physician practitioners, but under the anti-kickback statute, it is called the practitioner recruitment safe harbor. Now, like a lot of safe harbors, it's like steering a large ship into a small vessel. And that is that it is challenging to actually fully comply with all of the requirements under a safe harbor. And the practitioner recruitment safe harbor is not an exception to that rule. It involves a recruitment of a 
physician, I'm going to use physician uh, through this probably, but it applies to practitioner, but recruitment of a physician who either has been practicing in that specialty for less than one year or to induce a physician to relocate their primary place of practice into a health professional shortage area, so a HIPSA. Unlike the Stark Law, the anti-kickback statute is limited only to recruitment of a practitioner into a HIPSA. But similar to the exception under the Stark Law, the anti-kickback statute practitioner recruitment does require that it's set out in writing and signed by the parties. And if the practitioner is leaving an established practice, then at least 75% of the revenues that that practitioner is generating will have to be revenues from their new practice that they're relocating into the HIPSA. And the benefits, unlike the exception under the Stark Law, which had no limitation on the amount of years for the the benefits under the anti-kickback statute, the benefits can be limited or shall be limited to a maximum of three years. So that would include both the giving of incentives as well as any forgiveness term. So like if you had a two-year income guarantee and a one-year forgiveness, that total would be three years. That would comply with the safe harbor. But if you had a two-year income guarantee followed by a two-year forgiveness period, that'd be a total of four years, and that would not meet the three-year requirement under the anti-kickback statute. And they're just like the exception under the Stark Law, under the anti-kickback statute, there is no requirement that the physician refer. The physician does not have or should not have any restriction on establishing staff privileges at other providers or other hospitals. The amount of remuneration or compensation that's being provided to the recruited practitioner should not vary based upon the volume or value of referrals. The physician must agree And so this is a specific requirement that the physician must agree to treat patients receiving medical benefits or assistance from any federal health care program in a non-discriminatory manner. And so that would be Medicare and Medicaid, as well as any other federal payer. And at least 75% of the revenues of the new practice must be generated from residents in the HIPSA. So if the practitioner is establishing a new practice in the HIPSA, then some of the residents or patients can come from outside of the HIPSA and receive services from the recruited physician, but at least 75% of the revenues from that practice must be revenue from patients who actually have their residents in the HIPSA, and then anything of value that's provided cannot benefit any other provider. So if if the physician joins a group practice, then just like the exception under the Stark Law, no benefit that's being provided can actually be a financial benefit to an existing member of that practice. So the real issue under the anti-kickback statute is that it's limited to a HIPSA, and it's also limited to the 75% test that I talked about as well as the benefit is limited to a three-year term. So those are the major differences between the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law. 
so now I'm going to turn to sort of a fun portion of the, the recruitment discussion. And I'm going to talk first about some advisory opinions. And the first one is actually coming under the anti-kickback statute. And this is from the Office of Inspector General. And again, for those of you have, who have been listening to Stark Integrity, know that the Office of the Inspector General has oversight of the anti-kickback statute. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has oversight over the Stark Law. So the first advisory opinion that I'm going to be talking about is coming from the Office of the Inspector General. So obviously it's under the anti-kickback statute. And this is, is advisory opinion number 01-4. You know, basically, and, I, and I've had this question before, what this hospital wanted to do is the hospital wanted to loan money to a resident physician while they're still in training and receiving their residency from a hospital, another hospital that's outside of this recruiting hospitals service area. So they were going to provide the, this loan assistance for five years. And basically this loan assistance would pay for the physician's residency training. And then after the five-year residency program, then the amount loaned by the hospital to to this physician in training would be forgiven over a three-year term. So first off, uh, the arrangement failed to meet two of the material tests under the anti-kickback statute safe harbor. Number one is this recruiting hospital was not in a HIPSA. And number two, that the benefits were not limited to a three-year term. However, when the OIG went through and analyzed this arrangement, and they always come out with a statement that they are deeming the arrangement an, an acceptable arrangement for which they're not going to take any action against the requester with the assumption that there is no evidence of intent to induce referrals. And so this is a good, clean advisory opinion by basically saying that even though that the benefits exceeded the three years and was eight years, that there was a, enough protection built in. I mean, this was a new resident. So therefore, there was no patient practice that was being recruited and that it was focusing on a need in that service area. The specialty for this particular recruitment was otolaryngology, which ENT, and therefore they were able to show that there was a community need for that particular specialty. This one was a, an advisory opinion that was favorable. They did say in this advisory opinion that they believe under the anti-kickback statute that if benefits are greater than three years, then the the term of those benefits are, and I'll put in air quotes, suspect. But in, the, in this case, that was a favorable opinion. And while we're on the anti-kickback statute, one of the things that the OIG has been asked now, with respect to their safe harbor development was whether or not there could be joint recruitment. And I've had this question before. And by way of example, you have two hospitals who want to recruit. And let's assume that we have overlapping service areas and each of the hospital wants to provide 50% of the recruitment dollars. Well, the OIG has stated that, that they are not persuaded that a safe harbor can be crafted that would protect legitimate 
joint recruiting arrangements without sweeping in sham arrangements that are actually disguised as payments for referrals. That's a quote from the OIG. I guess if you're going to jointly recruit, like you have two or more hospitals that want to recruit a particular specialty, then it would be advisable for both of those hospitals to allocate the time that they believe the physician will be practicing in the various service areas. Let's say that you have two offices and two separate service areas and the physician is going to spend 50% of their time in both, then you should be able to pay 50% of the time, like 80% was going to be in hospitals A service area and 20% in hospital B service area, then you could do an 80-20 split. However, if you have overlapping service areas and the offices in the middle with this overlapping service areas, then I would not use the expected referrals coming from the physician as the allocation or distribution of the recruitment expenses. I would definitely split those 50-50 to make sure that the amount that each of the hospital uh, was providing uh, through the recruitment incentive was not linked to expected downstream referrals from the recruited physician. Those were a couple things from the anti-kickback statute. Now I'm going to turn to CMS and the Stark Law exception. So there's a few. I'm going to go through three advisory opinions quickly. The first advisory opinion is advisory opinion 2006-01, where a recruited physician was going to spend approximately 80 to 90 percent of the recruited physician's professional time within the geographic area served by the hospital. As I described in part one, and about 10 to 20 percent of the recruited physician's time in an office outside of the recruiting hospital's geographic area served by the hospital. And the concern was that if the recruited physician was not going to spend all of the recruited physician's time within the recruiting hospital service area, that the recruiting hospital could not advance or provide all of the recruitment benefits. And CMS in this advisory opinion said that the hospital could because a majority of the time the recruited physician was spending was going to be spent in the recruiting hospital service area. So it doesn't have to be 100%. Now, this advisory opinion, since it's an advisory opinion only for the specific facts stated, it doesn't give us any bright lines or clarity with respect to, well, what percentage is is okay. So I'm going to give you my opinion. Obviously, in, in this, I'm giving you my general opinion. And if I have a client who calls me with this specific fact pattern, I'd have to take a close look at it. But the government likes 75% for some reason. And a lot of the uh, Stark Law exceptions have the 75% test. I would say that it would be acceptable for the recruiting hospital to front 100% of the costs to recruit the physician if the physician was going to spend at least 75% in the recruiting hospital's geographic area served by the hospital. That is advisory opinion 2006-1. 
Next is, is advisory opinion 2007-1. And I've also received this call from clients that this hospital had a recruitment agreement. And as part of the recruitment agreement, if there were excess receipts by the practice that the recruited physician joined, so this was a three-way recruitment, the physician, the hospital, and a practice, that the excess receipts would be paid over to the hospital. Now, it was specifically pointed out in this advisory opinion, and there's nowhere in the exception that I said that any excess receipts have to go back to the recruiting hospital, but this was something that was placed into the contract. And the hospital wanted to remove that contractual provision during the term of the recruitment agreement. And CMS said they, they recognized that there was no requirement for that specific provision, but their position was that once it was included in the agreement, that the arrangement could not be modified to eliminate that provision and still remain compliant. So they're taking the position that once you establish the arrangement, the recruitment arrangement, it has to remain during the term of the arrangement. And you can not modify the terms and conditions during the term of the recruitment agreement. And again, I've received that question frequently from clients, and that has been my consistent answer. So that's advisory opinion 2007-1. The next one is CMS advisory opinion 2011-1. And this advisory opinion deals primarily with a non-compete that the hospital had in the recruited physician's agreement, whereby the recruited physician uh, could not provide services if the physician left within a 25-mile radius of the hospital and for one year. The hospital indicated that the the restriction, the non-compete was consistent with state law and CMS will not opine to state law, but just because it, it, it is permissible under state law does not necessarily mean it is permissible under the Stark law. But ultimately, uh, this physician could practice in at least one hospital that was in the geographic area served by the hospitals. Now, here's where the two definitions come into play. This this non-compete was a 25-mile radius around the hospital, but under the Stark Law exception, the geographic area is that contiguous zip code test from which 75% of the hospital's inpatients come. And so there are two different geographic areas. And they indicated that by the application of the 25-mile radius, there was a still one hospital, even though four hospitals was within that 25-mile radius, there was at least one hospital within the geographic area served by the hospital that the physician could practice in if the physician decided to not be employed by this hospital. And based upon that, the CMS indicated that the non-compete was acceptable. And I think in this case, what we need to do is we need to take a look at non-competes that either the hospital, if the hospital is employing, or the, the physician practice, the group practice, if the group practice is employing the recruited physician, take a look at the reasonableness of those restrictions to see if they terminated their employment, the recruited physician terminated their employment, would the recruited physician still be able to practice in the area? And in this case, that the physician was. 
And now I have three settlements to describe. So the first one is in 2012. Uh, this is $3.5 million settlement. This is from Cayuga Medical Center in Ithaca, New York. And as I told you previously, if the physician joins a group practice, then the expenses that are part of an income guarantee can only be incremental. In this case, we had another physician, a plastic surgeon, became a Quitam relator, and they alleged that the medical center was paying expenses that were not incremental, for which this hospital ended up settling for $3.5 million. But note, it was another physician on the hospital's medical staff that was the Quitam relator in that case. The next case is from 2019, and this is with Sutter Health and also the Sacramento Cardiovascular Surgeons Medical Group. So you had both Sutter Health and this physician group settling, and they settled for $46 million. And there was a lot to this case, as you could imagine, including personal services arrangements that exceeded fair market value. They leased office space at below market rates. And here's the recruitment one, that they reimbursed physician recruitment expenses that exceeded the actual recruitment expenses at issue. So it was the incremental nature. Some of the expenses that were paid for by the hospital were not incremental. So again, it just emphasizes the importance of documenting the incremental nature of expenses under an income guarantee. And lastly is a settlement from April 2020. And this one was with Centra Health Inc. and the Blue Ridge Ear, Nose and Throat and Plastic Surgery. So another physician group. But inter interesting about this is that the recruitment incentives were paid to physicians who were already in the service area. So it was an after the fact. And this goes back to my part one about those physicians who showed up in my office. This would have been me and my hospital employer if I didn't say no. This is the fact that these physicians were already in the market when they were paid. And there's also some issues in the complaint that were interesting that it was alleged by the Quitam relator that the group and hospital fudged the numbers uh, to keep cash flowing to the practice. And some of the expenses attributable to the physicians were, in fact, benefit costs for another employee. So that was not the recruited physician. And others were labeled as rent. But this physician practice owned their building, so there was no rent. And also the, the allegation was that the group improperly deposited checks that were made payable to the recruited physician without the physician's knowledge. Now, what's interesting about this case is, you know, how did it actually arise? Well... It was the recruited physician who was the Quitam relator. So the recruited physician left the hospital, which then the hospital tried to recover from the recruited physician the $80,000 that was paid to the recruited physician as a portion of the hospital's subsidies. And in response to the collection efforts on behalf of the hospital, the physician disputed the debt and ended up filing the Quitam whistleblower suit. 
So in this, so I just find it a little bit humorous that it was the recruited physician who ended up becoming the Quitam relator over the recruited recruiting arrangement. So I'm sure that there was something uh, between the recruited physician and this uh, Blue Ridge ear, nose, and throat and plastic surgery group. And what's also interesting about this case is. For the recruitment issue, Centra Health paid $1.8 million. The physician practice paid $1.6 million. But as part of this overall arrangement, Centra Health did a more complete Stark Law review, found other violations. And that's what I would encourage anybody who believes that they're subject to a QUITAM case or anything is to look, you know, look for any other potential violation. Because if you're going to pay for one, you might as well get it all out in the open. And they did. This, uh, they found $5.9 million of other settled violations. So in total, this arrangement was the, the settlement was for nine point three million dollars from Central Health and also Blue Ridge ear, nose, and throat. Then lastly, I just want to bring up about the IRS principles here, that there is a reasonableness aspect for tax-exempt hospitals uh, to document community need. So community need is, is important, even though it's not listed as a requirement under the Stark Law exception that you show community need. So for for-profit hospitals, you don't need to show community need, but for tax-exempt hospitals, because you're using tax-exempt dollars to financially induce a physician to relocate, that community need is an important aspect for IRS tax-exempt requirements. And it appears I could be talking about this for another couple of hours, but I've tried to keep these uh, within 20 to 30 minutes long. So it is now time for the Captain Integrity Punch Points. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one is with, with physician recruitment. Remember that incremental expenses is a major factor to make sure that the expenses as part of an income guarantee, that all of the expenses that are captured are incremental. So they are directly related to the joining of the recruited physician to the existing practice. So if they're not taking out any more space, then no rent can be assigned. If they're not going to hire another nurse, then nursing expenses can cannot be assigned. There are some of those exceptions that I talked about in part one, but for the most part, it just has to be direct expenses related to the recruited physician. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two is community need is a requirement for tax-exempt hospitals. So usually you will look at the number of specialists in an area, of physicians of a particular specialty, and use an analysis based, based upon the population. So according to this population, do I have uh, three oncologists, but the market needs five? So I have a deficit of two. So in that case, we meet the community needs standards and a tax-exempt hospital can provide recruitment incentives. If the market needs five and it has six, then we, we do not have a community need. And then for those tax-exempt hospitals, even if there was a business need, you possibly could not use tax-exempt dollars in recruitment. There's a lot of other exceptions that go into play there. And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three is monitor, 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 monitor these arrangements, making sure that when the documentation comes in, that we have sufficient documentation to support the recruitment as well as the dollars that are being paid for the recruited physician. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.